Hey everyone, it's Jen. And this is Lindsay. And welcome back to Corpus Delicti, the Sweet Home Alabama series. Yeah, so if you are just now joining us, we are diving into some crimes from our home state of Alabama. We started with Rocky. We have done a few since then, so hope you are now joining us for the ride because apparently a lot of really wild stuff has happened here. You would think us being Southern, we'd have a little bit of charm and hospitality. Turns out, not so much. Our last episode took us to the topmost corner of Alabama. Now this week's episode takes us to the southernmost tip next to the Gulf of Mexico, and we're talking about Mobile, Alabama. Now, Mobile has been long known for the oil rigs, the mussels, the crawfish, and Mardi Gras. Yes, we have our own Mardi Gras. It kind of carries over from New Orleans uh, along the coast of Mississippi and then over to the coast of Alabama. And what's cool about Mobile area is that for New Year's, they drop instead of a ball, they drop a moon pie. That is true. That is true. And Mobile is known to me as the place where I got my second tattoo in college. So just a little fun fact there. So tonight we're going to be talking about Thomas Warren Wisnant, who at the time, much like we said in our last story, was the longest inmate on Holman's death row. Again, keep in mind at the time they were all there at different times. So they each kind of held the record, I guess, so to speak. And like we said in the last episode, you know, we've been on kind of this social justice kick. This one, not so much. This one, we're going to talk about what the heck happened in this situation to get this person where he ended up. So let's start the story at the beginning just to try to understand Thomas. Now, Thomas was born January 29th in 1947. When he was born, he was just shy of five pounds. So he was an itty-bitty little baby. And he was the youngest of three other siblings. Now, he was born at home in the white farmhouse on Clark Street. His parents were very poor, and the marriage lacked love. And we'll get into that in just a moment. His mother, Emma, was a very domineering and abusive woman. So let's elaborate on that a little bit. She flat out abused her husband, Willie, and she encouraged the four children to do the same. She just saw him as as very weak. She saw him as nothing more than an alcoholic. On several occasions, she would yell at the kids, hit him with your shoe or whatever object was nearby. You know, your dad is is being useless, whatever. Go, Go hit him. After Thomas was born, she basically cut him off from sleeping in the same bed with her. And that is literally and figuratively. And basically, the relationship was over at that point. They were in the same house, but there was just nothing there. So Willie slept in his daughter Evelyn's room because her room had two beds. So he did remain in the home. But that whole dynamic of her being in charge and being very overbearing did continue. When Willie did work, because it wasn't consistent, he worked as an electrician on the various shipyards in and around Mobile. Emma would go through his wallet to find his paychecks. So if the cash that he gave her did not match the amount on the check, she would scream at him for trying to steal money away from the family. 
But when not working or drinking, he was pretty much forced to do all the household work. Now, his sister in court, she said that her father washed every dish that was washed in the house. And what she meant by this is nobody else did any of the chores. So he had to do all the cleaning, all the sweeping, all of the laundry because Emma made him. She refused to let the children do that. And she even didn't do it. I mean, she was a stay-at-home mom. She looked after the kids, but would not touch a broom. And Willie was often covered in bruises because, again, he was physically and mentally abused. Emma's physical abuse never spilled over to the children, though. It was only focused on him. That's for the physical abuse. Now, mental abuse, that's a little bit of a different story. So Emma would constantly tell her daughter, your daddy keeps you from having anything because he drinks all the time. So he's stealing money from the family. He's using it all for booze. It's his fault we can't do anything. And not only that, she was very, very overprotective of Thomas from the day he was born. Now, Thomas, remember, he was very small as a baby. He also had seizures as a baby. And that's what started him sleeping with his mother. He would sleep in the bed with her. And he did that until the age of seven. But He continued to sleep in the room with his mother until he was 16 years old. So he didn't even have an official room for himself. It was her room. Well, and picture a teenage boy sharing a room. Through puberty. Yeah, with with your mother. There's no privacy. There's, that's just, yeah, there's no distance there. Now, this alone is monumentous. This affected him throughout his entire life, and it greatly shaped the person that he would become. When all the kids were in school, Emma picked up a job at Crest. Now, after school, the kids would go to their grandmother's house until Emma would leave work. So up until Thomas was born, she didn't work. She waited until he was in high school to start work. Their grandmother shared her daughter's temperament which means the grandmother was very physically and emotionally abusive as well. And she portrayed that abuse onto Thomas a lot. She would make him stand in a corner and whip him. So growing up with Emma, Thomas could do no wrong. He was never at fault for anything. He was the baby. And as a result, he was a timid child, kind of shy, mild, you know, pretty pretty easy for the most part. That is until the age of 12. And then something changed around the age of 12, and he would just sit there quietly and stare at nothing. And then it turned into being moody. He became violent. He was just this person with a whole lot of built-up anger, and we will talk about this a little bit more later, but there was this noted change in him around the age of 12. Now, Thomas couldn't go anywhere by himself, and Emma, when she couldn't go with him, would tell his sister to go with him to go get gas in his car. Now, when he was able to work, he would also hand over all of his paycheck to her. As you can kind of guess, He never really dated. He didn't date anyone in high school. And the only time he brought a girl as his date was to his senior prom. One time he got in trouble in Pritchard, which is a nearby 
town to the big city of Mobile, and that was the start of a huge downward spiral for Thomas. So let's flash back for just a second and talk about Emma, the mom. During her childhood, she had an accident which left her partially disabled. One of her arms had been withered. And now if we cut back, Thomas is older now. He's a teenager. He had this change that occurred to him around the age of 12. He's violent now. He's not really into women aside from prom. And as a teenager, he would grab that arm on his mother. And if he wasn't getting his way, he would he would grab it and, and hurt her by inflicting pain onto that old injury that she had. His sister recalled later that it was hell every day in our house. I mean, you've got the overbearing mother. Thomas is violent. Their father is an alcoholic and things are just not going well. So we talked about the change you know, between 12 going on 13, that he went from this mild mannered, sweet temper, quiet off in the distance to a very angry and violent into his teenage years. Well, in 1963, Thomas was 13. His sister was making candy and she thought she heard a car backfire, but she was mistaken. She had actually heard a gunshot and that gunshot had killed an elderly 72-year-old woman in the vacant lot, and it was happened to be located next door. Now, the police were able to recover a murder weapon in that lot, and they kind of zeroed in on Thomas as their primary suspect. They found out in their investigation that the gun had been stolen from a house down the street where Thomas lived. He and some friends had used that area as their local little hangout spot. And keep in mind, we had said that his downward spiral started when he got into trouble at one point. So at this point, he's not completely unfamiliar to the police. There have been a few little incidents here and there. And so they're like, well, he's in the area and all that. So they used bloodhounds starting at where this gun was stolen from. And they kind of followed the scent to see where it led to. Where's the gun now? And it led them to Thomas's house. And and again, like we said, he had been known to the police. And part of this was for assaulting some younger girls. And he had been involved in a purse theft and just things like that. But he had escaped any charges up to this point. Everything else that had happened, he he kind of got lucky on, but this put him on their radar. So his dad, Willie, answered the door when the police came to question about this incident. And Willie told the police, hey, Thomas was home all day and night. So the police ask all the other siblings, they ask the mother, and they're all like, yeah, he was home. And our mom wouldn't have let him leave. She's very overbearing. She would have known if he left. Now, this did not prevent the police from taking Thomas down to the police station for questioning. They reported later on that Thomas was extraordinarily indifferent, like exceedingly so about the murder which happened near his home. He was just like, okay, so an old lady died. So what? Showing no remorse whatsoever. Now, while in jail, Thomas was visited by the family minister, Robert Norman. And after speaking with Thomas, the minister told his sister that Thomas is a very sick man. He needed psychiatric help. When his sister relayed the information to Emma, Emma's exact reaction was, what do you want me to do? I don't have any money. I don't know what to do. So Emma doesn't really 
believe what they're saying. They're saying, look, we've evaluated him. Something's off. And she's like, eh, what do you want me to do? Because remember, he was the baby. He never got in trouble for anything. So there's not really anything tying Thomas to the murder. So again, he, he walks away. There's no charges. They questioned him. You know, there was that scent trail, but we know that that's kind of hit or miss. And he's a teenager. He's very young. So they're like, look, before we railroad a child, we got to have something substantial. So Thomas grew up. He got married. But as we have learned throughout all of our true crime listening and watching, his marriage resembled that of his parents in certain aspects. Now, his wife, went to the police station one night to file a report. Thomas had wanted to play a game. This game consisted of choking her with her stalking until she was rendered unconscious. Before he did this, he had made her write a suicide note just in case something were to go wrong. The police talked to Thomas and just told him, hey dude, straighten up. Don't do it again. So basically, at this point, he hasn't been been held accountable for anything, not this choking his wife, nothing with the shooting, which they couldn't link anything to, any of the as- assaults or purse thefts before. So why are we here? Why are we talking about this? Well, when we get back from our break, we'll finally get to the crime that did him in. All right, welcome back. Now let's get in to the reason why we're here. On a rainy day on October 16, 1976, Tris Lowe and his fiancée went to a local compact store on Swede Town Road. This is a little convenience store in a small town of Irvington, Alabama. Now Irvington is just 15 to 18 minute drive from Mobile, Alabama. So around 8.30 that evening, they popped into the store and saw Miss Cheryl Lynn Payton. She was working that night at the register. At the time, she was just 24 years old. She was married. Her husband had dropped her off at work a few minutes before her shift started at 3 o'clock. So the couple, which is Tris Lowe and his fiance, they bought a few Cokes. Now, let's be clear here. We're in the South, so Cokes could be Sprite, Dr. Pepper. Cokes is just the generic term. And at 10, Tris came back to the store. So on the second visit to the store, he noticed that the parking lot was empty and the Coke machine was open. The keys were in the machine, in the lock, and there was a broken six pack of Cokes on the floor. Now, in his statement, he wrote that he also noticed a mop in a bucket nearby. Seeing the mess, he goes out to the payphone. 1976, remember, there's no cell phones. Now, the receiver on the phone was broken, and there was a Miller Pony inside the phone booth. I don't know if y'all have them in and around your area, but a Miller Pony is just a Miller High Life in that short, squatty bottle. It's a glass bottle. So Tris went back into the store and called the police who arrived on the scene. Cheryl Payton was missing, and they thought off the bat that foul play was suspected. I mean, you've got the bottles nearby, she's missing, the mop is out. So the next day, Gary Risher and his friend George Pendarvis, they were hunting on some land owned by Ed Tripp. Ed Tripp owned 5,000 acres of farmland in Irvington, Alabama. 
Around 6 p.m., they saw a man standing just off the road watching these two drive up. And they're like, huh, that's a little strange. There's not really normally people out here. So they stopped and they're like, hey, is everything okay? Did you need help? And the man says, oh, I'm just I'm just walking around. George told him, look, we know what you're doing. And the stranger asked what George meant by the statement. George just repeated, but like, dude, we know what you're doing. Because George and his friend Gary thought he was going and doing some night hunting, which is not exactly legal, considering that's not even his land to do it, and he didn't have permission to even be on that farmland. After this brief encounter, the stranger started walking towards Highway 90. Gary and George reached out to Trip and told him, hey, look, there's a strange man on your property, probably night hunting. You probably want to go out there and look at it, because remember, this is farmland, so there's cattle, there's wild stock, and he wants to make sure his investments are one still living and they're not hurt. On October 18, 1976, this is two days after the police were called to the store, Tripp drives down to the spot where Gary had said they had seen the stranger. He gets out of his car and he begins looking around thinking, you know, did he litter? You know, did he drop something that I could figure out who he was? But what he found was Cheryl. She had only on her denim shirt and her knee-high socks. Unfortunately, Cheryl was deceased. And so within five minutes, he had run back to his home. He called police and he met the police at this very site 10 to 15 minutes later. Now, this is important. So he sees Cheryl, runs back to the house, which takes five minutes. Within 10 to 15 minutes, they're back at that site. And he's like, hey, there is a deceased woman here. Except there wasn't. Because when he got there with the police, Cheryl's body was gone. So they're looking around. They're like, well, that's weird. He wouldn't just say that, probably. And they noticed drag marks on the ground. And they followed these drag marks, which led them to some very dense bushes. And there they found, covered in some boards, Cheryl's body. Tripp noticed that there were now cuts on the body where they weren't 20 minutes earlier. The person who had dragged her to that area had started to cut her. Now, she had circular wounds over her left breast where her nipple had been cut off. It was not recovered at the site. She also had a cut on her stomach, right thigh, and several around her genital area. She had also been cut on her skull. Now, the autopsy would confirm that all of these cuts occurred after her death which makes sense because she had been missing for two days and all of a sudden within 20 minutes her body was moved. She had also been raped. And that happened before and after her death, just to be clear. And right next to her sat a pack of Miller Pony beers. Now, if you remember from earlier, that is the same type of beer that was found near the phone at the convenience store when she first was missing. So the officers called in backup. And as they're doing this, Tripp noticed a white pickup truck on the road. He saw that same truck earlier in the same area, which is all his property, mind you, not a well-traveled area. And the driver then and now had long, curly, reddish-brown hair. When that driver drove up that way and saw all the police cars, he suddenly stopped the car, turned around, and took off the other way. Now, that's not exactly a good way to fly under the radar if you're in an area that's never traveled 
there's a dead person in the area and all of a sudden you just throw it into reverse and start going the other way. So naturally, they're like, what the heck is going on? So one of the policemen jumps into their patrol car and thus begins a high-speed chase. Now, the speeds range between 80 to 100 miles an hour on these back road, dirt road of this town. So the speed's just too much for this driver to handle, especially with it being on a dirt road. He crashes through an electrical fence, and then he finally is stopped when the car crashes into a cluster of trees. But he's going to keep going. Just because his truck was out of commission, he's not. He jumps out of the car and begins racing to the woods on foot. Which is like, at that point, they're in cars, you're on foot, but hey. So at this time, the police reinforcements are arriving. They surround the truck, but again, he's not in the truck. So Chief Investigator Driggers takes charge of the 20 policemen on the scene. So here's this guy, crashed his truck, he's run off somewhere, and the pol- some of the police run the license plates of the truck. And the results come back. The truck belonged to Thomas Wisnant. So the police called Thomas's wife and they're like, hey, here's the deal. Here's what happened. We think that he's associated with this since he saw us and ran. We need your help getting to him. So she comes out there and she spoke through the loudspeaker on one of the officer's cars. She's begging him to come out and he yells back. Baby, I've done everything they said I did. Just flat out confess. Officer Driggers and Thomas's wife walked into the woods to find Thomas standing next to the trees. He did not have a gun, but that didn't prevent him from threatening the police. He proceeds to yell at the officer, USOB, I'm going to make you kill me. He doesn't have a gun. He doesn't have a weapon on him. So... To that effect, Driggers just walks up to Thomas and places handcuffs on him. Be like, no, you're not. You're under arrest here, buddy. Thomas was then led to the police car and then taken into custody. So after they take him in the car, the police who are remaining on the scene are checking everything out. They're starting their investigation. And in his truck, they found the knife that was used to mutilate Cheryl And they also found a pair of jeans, which looked like they belonged to her. They found her underwear, and they also found a mini pad. And back at the station, they're questioning him about Cheryl, and he provides a full confession within the first hour. He knows the jig is up. He just went on a police chase, ran off into the woods. He's like, okay, yes, I did it. He goes on to describe how he kidnapped her from the store and drove her to a secluded area surrounded by woods. There, he rapes her in the front seat of his truck, and then he shoots her in the head. He used that thirty-two caliber gun, and then he dragged her to the area where she was first found. He returns the next day to mutilate her. He wanted to cut off her breast and slit her stomach, but that's when Tripp saw his truck, which was leading to the arrest, So the next day, he had come back, started cutting, gets in his truck, maybe he forgot something, goes down the road, picks it up, comes back. That's where he sees the police, thus the high-speed chase. That's pretty horrific, but that's not all. He then tells them 
that he also killed Verona Hyatt, who also worked at a convenience store. So Miss Hyatt's body was discovered near the side of an old house covered with kudzu vines at the intersection of Halls Mill Road and Higgins Road. And this was about six months earlier. So they're like, whoa, okay, well, we didn't really see that one coming. But that's still not it. Another one they didn't see coming was he completely offered a confession for the murder of Patricia Hitt. Now, in November of 1975, Diggers was a responding officer to the compact store on Cottage Hill and Schindler's Road in Mobile. That's where they found Patricia, who had been killed by a single gunshot in the head. All three murders had happened within 18 months. Only two of the three victims had been brutally mutilated after their deaths. But during the interrogations, he's kind of on a roll now. He's told them about three murders. Well, he also tells them about an elderly woman that he killed when he was just 13 years old. He said that he had stolen a gun and took out a bullet. On this bullet, he marked it with an X, and he told all of his friends that this bullet is going to kill somebody. So this is that gunshot that we talked about at the beginning of the episode that his sister heard, thought that it was a car backfiring. He, they thought it was him, but then he got off with no charges. Even though he was in jail, a jailhouse visitor went and saw him and reported seeing Playboy magazines in his cell. The pictures were cut and disfigured And those were done by Thomas. So he was continuing on these same behaviors and traits even while he's sitting in prison. Now, while in custody, the court orders an evaluation of his mental health due to the graphic nature of these crimes. They bring in Claude Brown, who had 26 years of experience. Claude brought in Thomas to the Searcy Hospital for a psychiatric examination and evaluation. Dr. Brown, as well as two other psychiatrists, Kimbrough and Rudder, were appointed by the superintendent of the hospital to carry out this evaluation. So they evaluated him, they assessed him, and they did this on three different occasions while he was there. They reviewed all of his medical background, family environment, police reports, the crime scene, social service reports, any and everything out there they took into consideration for this evaluation. And they determined that even though Thomas does suffer from mental illness, which we'll talk about, he was fully aware of what he was doing during the crimes. He had not drinking alcohol. He hadn't taken drugs or anything like that. Now, there was that one beer, but one beer does not equal drunk. And then they did find that six pack, but it was untouched at that time. So what it seems like is that he went in with the intention to do it. And that's, he was going to drink while he did it. He didn't drink before, but he had them sitting there when they unfortunately found Cheryl. During one of these sessions, Thomas had told Dr. Brown about a time when he was 12. Two older girls were with him and they threatened to castrate him if he didn't have sex with them. This was the age where He transformed from mild and soft-spoken to violent. Now, was this a catalyst to his behavior? Maybe, maybe not. With serial killers, it's not to say you can believe everything they say. It's not to say you can't. 
we, we don't know. But if this is true, then that would basically be rape. He would have been raped by these girls. So let's assume that that happened and that these girls said, you have to have sex with me or we are going to mutilate you. Plus, you have his mother who is domineering against his father and abusing his father. He's seeing all these women using violence to get what they want. But unfortunately, it just went way too far. Dr. Brown uncovered that the birth of Thomas's first child was soon before the murders took place. The first murder occurred approximately six weeks after the birth, and the second was the same month that his wife told him she was pregnant again. The third was the night of his first child's first birthday. So here we have more triggering events. So you know, being a father for him, you know, did he fear that he was in the same place his dad was and he didn't want the abuse? So Thomas was officially diagnosed with, quote, severe schizoid personality with marked paranoid traits with the traits of necrosadism. That is the sadistic destructive act with bodies that are dead, end quote. So Dr. Brown evaluates him, goes through all this, and he says, I don't know of a treatment program to help this man. Now, I'm not saying that there's not one. I'm just saying that I don't know of one. So here is a man who is 26 years in the profession, and he's like, I got nothing. So we're going to go to the first trial. You heard me right. The first one. The prosecution made the following open remarks, and it's really important. He said, They have used some year of 1965 when all of his troubles began. I wrote down, I quoted them, I wrote them down on legal pad. This is when all his troubles began. All of his troubles did not begin in 1965. He robbed a blind lady on Pritchard and was able to beat the charge on a technicality. He purse snatched, and I think the police lieutenant would tell you about a situation in regards to another homicide in Pritchard, Alabama. So if three murders and a beating of someone close to death is not bad enough, we can see where he started when he was young and he had just been a career criminal, dangerous, violent person all of his life. Well, they're saying, you know, that first shooting incident happened when he was 13, but you're forgetting that before that he stole a purse, he assaulted a blind lady. Did it really start then, or is he just out of control? Now, he is on trial for the murder of three women. The defense never brings up his previous crimes, so remember that. Now, after a dozen witnesses and testimony from doctors, the jury still found Thomas guilty. Now, we know of his mental illness, but they deemed him sane when those acts were committed. But because of this opening statement, which mentions past crimes, which were not approved to be heard in court, their verdict is overturned. So here we go. It was overturned. They've got to do it again. The state retried the case, and they won another guilty verdict. However, on appeal, it was overturned again because it was, was it the same judge? Same judge. Because it was the same judge who should have recused himself from presiding over this because he heard it the first time when all those other crimes were mentioned that shouldn't have been allowed. So there was also hearsay testimony by the victim's mother, which was allowed 
and it could have swayed the jury. That's so, so they waive it a second time. Now we're on to the third trial. This time he is found guilty. But instead of receiving a life sentence like he did the first and second trial, he is now sentenced to death. He has been diagnosed by the prosecution and the defense doctors for having a life crippling mental illness, but they still give him the death penalty. Emma, his mom, would visit him very often until she died in 1984. And on May 27, 2010, he did receive lethal injection to end his sentence. He was dressed in all white and strapped down to the bed when the order was carried out at 6 p.m. In the room of witnesses to view the execution were family members of his victims, and he still showed no remorse for the crimes. He was 63 years old, and he had been in prison for 32 years, 8 months, and 20 days. Now, there's actually still a debate about this and whether or not he should have been executed because of the mental illness diagnosis. So what you've got is, yes, there are these, as they said, you know, schizoid tendencies, but they also said that he was sane at the time. So I guess, you know, how do you prove what he was or wasn't at the time? And he readily confessed to every single one of them. Interesting fact on this case is what we're finding throughout this Alabama series. So far, everyone that we have talked about has ended up on death row, which means that our dear friend Robin Rocky Myers has just happened to know them all. And he did know Thomas Wisnett. He said that he was a weird bird. Uh, which which seems to track. Um, but it's just kind of interesting because here you have this man who mutilated people and he had Playboy magazines where he still showed those tendencies. And then you have Rocky. You know, it's like how these two men don't belong in the same place. No, they absolutely don't. But something also we wanted to touch base on and say a huge thank you to is Samantha and Chris for becoming our newest Patreons. Uh, We had a few questions about where bonus content is. Um, It's in the feed of the Patreon page. So if you want to click on the videos or our extra old, old episodes that you can't hear anywhere else, there's actually a link for that as well. Yeah, on Patreon, it's basically just one long feed. There's not really a way to kind of separate them out. So all the videos and stuff, you kind of just have to go in chronological order. We have all of the episodes as they release ad-free. So those are on there, but then you'll also see the videos kind of dispersed throughout. The early episodes are tagged. So if you search early episodes, that's how those are pulled up. So just to clarify that, we've also gotten a lot of questions about letters for Rocky. And if we're still doing it, the answer is yes, yes, yes. We will probably be doing it for a long time um, until they submit his clemency package. So if you still want to send a letter, by all means, yes. P.O. Box 89, Chelsea, Alabama, or you can scan it and email it to corpusdelicti at yahoo.com. He loves hearing how many letters we've gotten each week. It makes this man's day because he knows that people care. So please, by all means, yes. And don't forget, if you're an Alabama resident, to put that in there too. Yeah. Because our governor is really big on having 
Alabamians' voices heard. So we want to make sure if you are from Alabama, go ahead and put that in there. We are going to hop over to Facebook because we do have a question, but we will not have an episode next week. We will also have some time off in June as well, which we'll say closer to it. We're Jen's moving in like two months. I'm moving in a few months. Things are just a little hectic. Plus, we have vacations coming up where I'm taking the family down to the beach. Um, I should say my husband's taking us down to the beach. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be all transparent and stuff. But it's it's a yearly trip we take with another family who's close with us and has kids their age. But um, yeah, we are, and I need to stage my house, and it's a pain, and I hate it. <laughs> yeah. I'm never moving again. Amen, sister. This is it. I can't handle the, I mean, we have several months left, and I feel like it's tomorrow. And I'm like, we have to do this right now. It's terrible. But on that note, let's hop on over to Facebook. So this one is the question, if you were a spy, what would be your specialty? So Adam says, stealing sushi rolls without getting caught. I can get on board with that. Deanna says, I'm a human lie detector. Nice. Believe it or not, that hits a little close to home because for two years, I had my children believing (laughs) my superpower strength was being a lie detector. And they would test me. And they're horrible liars. I (laughs) I was able to tell. But only recently did my son go, you know, I don't think that's true. What? How dare you question me? Jonathan says mechanical gremlins. I'm assuming that means like kind of hacking stuff. I don't know. I think he actually means those little gremlins that he could send out to gather information and bring them back. Okay. Which isn't a bad idea. Uh, Samantha said finding people on Facebook and everyone they know. You know, social media stalking is like huge. Well, speaking of, Ashton says social media stalking. I can find anyone with a first name and a hair color. You know, don't put anything online if you don't want somebody to see That's it. Right. Carrie says, being invisible to people. Are you invisible, Carrie? That's pretty cool. I think Carrie just means like blending in, but. Yeah. <laughs> Heather says, finding where the kids hide their chocolate Easter candy. <laughs> nice. Candy says, finding the best thrift and consignment store in any city. Yes, please. I will go with you. Denise says, listening, you'd be surprised what you can hear when you have your iPods in and people think you're listening to a podcast. Christina says, listening, I blend into places amazingly well and people tend to forget about me so they talk freely. On top of that, apparently, I'm the type that people feel comfortable telling everything to. What would be your spy speciality? Like if you were to be a spy for the U.S., what what would they use you for? I think mine is probably that I'm super friendly and I'm so small that I think people just trust me naturally, maybe. So maybe kind of like Christina said, people would just think I'm your friend and tell me whatever. What about you? Mine would probably be like, like when I've had enough, I just explode with anger and be like, kill all the terrorists. So you're just going to be like a commander? I clear out a bad room. Oh, and for my nerdy friend, I got to tell you something. Okay. May the fourth be with you. I am so proud of you right now. Because this will release maybe on Tuesday. It will. Oh, my gosh. I'm so proud I could cry. Thank you. That that means a lot. <laughs> Landon reminded me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so no episode next week. We'll be back after that, I think, for one or two episodes before we're off for two weeks, I think. Something like that. So 
Yeah, it's going to go by fast. Sorry, guys, but summer hits and it's tough. The beach is calling. Disney's calling and we must go. We're vaccinated. We're going. (laughs) All right. Well, until then, you know what we say to Felicia. Bye. Bye.